Thanks for listening and subscribe today for our new Substack newsletter. That's Michael Medved's Context, placing today's big events in the unique perspective of our past and our future. Go to michaelmedved.substack.com and sign up today for my uncensored take on current controversies. From pop culture to politics, this is The Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day as the campaign moves on. The front now is not Iowa. It's New Hampshire. But people are still arguing about what Iowa really means. Was it a single-minded and very determined triumph for Donald J. Trump, a landslide victory as he prepares for his coronation. Karen Tumulty, who is no fan of Trump, she's a uh, columnist and an editor for the Washington Post, she'll be joining us a little bit later. She believes this is part of the Trump coronation and that there is no meaningful chance for anybody else to win anything in uh, this primary struggle. Uh, Meanwhile, there are others with very different points of view who point out some of the weaknesses if you actually look at the numbers that uh, Donald Trump received. Uh, The point being he got 51% of the vote. That means that half of the Republicans who came out on a very, very cold and forbidding and scary night in terms of inclement weather, that half of the Republicans who came out wanted someone other than Trump. Speaking of someone other than Trump. Uh, Nikki Haley is attacked on a brand new basis by President Trump directly. He is echoing a previous attack on this same basis by uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, The uh, basis for the attack, Nikki Haley's name. Uh, What does President Trump have to say? We will get to that. We will also be talking about the uh, ongoing crisis in the world at large, a crisis about an expanded war in the Middle East, the possibility of a, a much more serious and bigger war between Israel and Hezbollah. Hezbollah, more power and certainly more weapons, more rockets at Israel's northern border. Hezbollah is located in the nation of Lebanon. And what this means, of course, is that when Israel strikes back at Hezbollah after they launch rockets at Israelis and empty out entire communities which have had to evacuate because of the Hezbollah attacks, then the only way Israel can hit back is by hitting Lebanese territory. Lebanon is a different country in which Hezbollah, the Shiite militia funded by Iran, plays a very prominent role. How do you make sense of all this? How do you avoid a devastating new war? We'll speaking, we'll be speaking about that with Ilan Berman, uh, who has been to that area recently and is an expert on the threat, particularly from Iran. Uh, we will also be talking about the threat to marriages, uh, the threat that is encapsulated in the current bitter, bitter political climate in the United States. Uh, lots of people have talked about whether it is possible 
to sustain a relationship if, say, you have one partner in a couple who is a very big enthusiast of a return for Donald Trump to the White House, and then the other partner in a relationship uh, believes that uh, Joe Biden is just the ticket, that uh, he should stay right where he is. Can this marriage be saved? That used to be a feature in the Ladies Home Journal. And uh, that's a question that is on the table now. And uh, then there is praise for President Trump from a very unexpected source. Uh, the uh, J.P. Morgan CEO, uh, Jamie Dimon. It's pretty remarkable. We will get to that as well on a very busy day on the Michael Medved show. Uh, first up, news from the, the Middle East. Uh, the, uh, there was a terrible incident that uh, just occurred in, involving a, uh, a woman who was killed and 17 seriously hurt in a uh, Palestinian car ramming attack. A 70-year-old woman, this is from uh, the BBC, a 70-year-old woman has been killed and 17 other people injured in what police say was a terrorist attack in Israel. Two Palestinians from the occupied West Bank have been arrested over the incident in Ranana, uh, which is about 12 miles north of Tel Aviv, which, of course, is the biggest city in terms of population in Israel. It is emphatically not the capital, but it is the capital of finance and uh, the, the, again, largest city in the country. The uh, suspects allegedly... Uh, switched between three stolen vehicles and uh, stabbed pedestrians that they found and then ran over different pedestrians in different places. Again, 17 people seriously injured. The uh, Israeli media report that the woman who died was stabbed by one of the suspects before he and an accomplice and an accomplice took her car and used it to ram into people. The attackers lost control of the car, then stole a second car and continued driving into people with the intent of killing them, according to the stories. The Haaretz newspaper, the leading newspaper uh, in, in Israel in terms of circulation, quoted an eyewitness as saying they saw someone stab three people near the mall. The attacker stole a car and ran over other people. It is unclear how the attackers were stopped, ultimately, and arrested. Police say both suspects came from the West Bank city of Hebron and that they had both entered Israel illegally. Uh, there have been few reports, says the BBC, of attacks in Israel since the war began on 7th October. And uh, this incident, this week, will further increase the sense of anxiety among Israelis. Of course, that's the intention. The uh, Hamas praised the operation. Uh, they didn't quite take credit for it. They, of course, are not in in particular state of power uh, in the city of Hebron. Hamas praised the attack on Ranana as, quote, a natural response to the occupation's massacres and its continued aggression against our Palestinian people. Uh, there was uh, uh, also another incident 
uh, and uh, an incident where 22-year-old Mohammed Hassan Abu Sabah and Ahmed Mahmoud Mohammed, 23, were shot to death by Israeli forces during what the Palestinian news agency called a confrontation in the town of Dura, south of Hebron. Uh, the Israel Defense Forces said its forces had been attacked with uh, Molotov cocktails, petrol bombs, and rocks, and had responded uh, with riot dispersal means and live fire. An assailant who hurled a Molotov cocktail at the forces was killed, and additional hits were identified. Uh, the the idea uh, of what's going on in Israel uh, being just constant violence and constant struggle, uh, it, it certainly is true for the troops who are in Gaza and remain in Gaza, though now there is increasing talk by the Israeli leadership about uh, trying to reorient the the goal uh, in uh, Gaza to really concentrate on destroying some of the tunnels that have been bought at the cost of literally hundreds of millions of dollars, which uh, the Hamas gets from its worldwide sources of support. But destroying those tunnels, which have been unbelievably expensive at a time when people have talked about the needs of the people who actually live in Gaza, that is a, a goal that um, that, again, should be attainable and not far, far, far in the future, but within a matter of months. Uh, we will talk about that and talk about what is coming up next in the Middle East with Ilan Berman coming up on the Michael Medved Show. Also, what about the courtroom in Manhattan where the judge threatened to throw Donald Trump out? And on the uh, Michael Medved show, uh, there is uh, yet another story beyond the incidents of uh, violent confrontations in Israel. In London, six members of the activist group Palestine Action were arrested for attempting to disrupt the London Stock Exchange. Uh, that did not succeed. Of course, this, this is part of... Um, do you remember the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People? Uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People does not try to disrupt the stock exchange. It's not trying to close highways in the Seattle area so that people can't get to work, can't get to hospitals, can't get to where they need to be. And uh, traffic is blocked for... Again, six hours. It's not trying to close the Holland Tunnel or to disrupt traffic at LaGuardia Airport so people can't make their flights. It's not trying to interfere with uh, Christmas tree lightings or Thanksgiving Day parades. But somehow, somebody seems to have planted this idea uh, that there is new sympathy for people uh, Palestinian activists and for pro-Hamas activists uh, that you will win additional sympathy by basically going crazy and interfering with people's lives and hurting other people. 
And uh, it's not a strategy that has ever worked and certainly is not going to work here. Uh, we will get to, to more on that with uh, Ilan Berman coming up in just a moment. Uh, but first, there, there's another different kind of confrontation in New York City right now. Now, it, I know it's very confusing and it's, it's very difficult. Uh, somebody really probably should make uh, the equivalent of baseball cards or boxing cards or something about all of the very legal challenges confronting the Republican frontrunner and the likely Republican nominee for president, Donald J. Trump. But what's going on today in New York, what's going on today in New York is not a criminal trial. It uh, is a trial, and the reason it's not a criminal trial is because the charges about it go back to 1996. It's beyond the statute of limitations. And a previous jury found that they believed that it was true what E. Jean Carroll had said, that President Trump had uh, come after her all those years ago in a dressing room at Bergdorf Goodman, a department store, and had raped her. They did not say that it was true that he had raped her necessarily, but it was true that he had performed sexual assault, which is also a, a criminal charge. But again, this is not a criminal trial. It's a trial about the fact that President Trump, as soon as she came out with these accusations, said all kinds of nasty things about her. She was social climber. She was somebody he had never met, which is clearly not true. There are pictures of the two of them, and in, because Trump was a friend of her husband. But in any event, the, uh, uh, the trial today is about how much Trump is going to have to pay her and how much damage she has received because of uh, uh, President Trump's attacks on her and his denials of uh, the sexual assault, which the previous jury found those denials to be unpersuasive. Uh, so today, President Trump is listening. He's not formally testifying, but he w was listening and he was instructed that he had a perfectly right, good right to be there and to listen because the trial involves him. And uh, the, E. Jean Carroll is demanding at least $10 million. It's estimated she'll probably get more than that when the jury decides. But uh, uh, th this again is the uh, Trump confronting the judge, whose name is Louis A. Kaplan, uh, today, this morning in a New York courtroom. And the judge told the court, saying, Mr. Trump has the right to be present here, but that right can be forfeited. And he said, Mr. Trump, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from the trial. And the reason he was saying that was because while there was other testimony going on, while E. Jean Carroll was reviewing her story and talking about how she said the attacks by Trump ruined her life and led to death threats and led to people shunning her and led to all kinds of destructive impacts on her life. Uh, Trump was snickering. He was making comments that could be heard by the jury. And uh, he was basically not following the instructions he had been given at the beginning, which is he has to sit and participate respectfully and quietly. 
And when um, uh, when Judge Kaplan said, Mr. Trump, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from the trial. Trump shot back. I would love it. Well, of course he would. This is how he has uh, risen in the polls. The more he gets in trouble with uh, legal authorities who he believes are doing hatchet jobs on behalf of the Democratic Party, uh, he builds up new support. So Trump shot back, I would love it. And then Judge Kaplan replied to Trump's taunt saying, I know you would. I know you would. You just can't control yourself in this circumstance, apparently. Trump then raised eyebrows uh, with his decision to attend the trial, the commentary says, where he is not required to appear. Um, Whether this is going to have some kind of impact on his political welfare, it is striking that there was a, a... a entrance poll that was done in Iowa. And remember, President Trump won the Iowa caucuses with a commanding lead of 51%. But it does mean that there were still in Iowa, despite the fact that he clearly dominated the state, half of the Republican voters did not vote for Donald Trump. They voted for somebody else. And uh, they voted mostly for uh, Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. In any event, the um, uh, idea of what is happening here is that when you look at the entrance polls, they it was asked, one of the questions they asked is, do you believe uh, that President Trump would be fit for the presidency uh, if he is convicted of a crime? And... It, it, believe it or not, there were 64% of the people said, nah, no problem. Uh, we'll have a felon in chief. That'll be fine. However, there were 30% of Republicans, of those who came out to the Iowa caucuses and voted so heavily for Donald Trump, 30% of the people said, yes, that would be a problem. That would be unacceptable for him to be fit for the presidency if he were convicted of a crime. Now... Again, he's going to be facing uh, legal proceedings on a lot of different crimes right in the height of uh, the, the primary season. So what impact is that going to have? And what impact is the spreading war in the Middle East going to have? We'll talk about that with Ilan Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council, coming up on The Medved Show. Thanks for listening and subscribe today for our new Substack newsletter. That's Michael Medved's context, placing today's big events in the unique perspective of our past and our future. Go to michaelmedved.substack.com and sign up today for my uncensored take on current controversies. Show always a pleasure to welcome back uh, Elon Berman, who is senior vice president of the American Foreign Policy Council in Washington, D.C. He is an expert on regional security in the Middle East, Central Asia, and the Russian Federation, 
who has consulted for the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency as well as the U.S. Departments of State and Defense. Uh, Ilan, it's, it's such a busy time for somebody with your line of work with all of these potential conflicts uh, in uh, the Middle East, in Eastern Europe, uh, around the world, in, uh, in Asia. Uh, you, you have pointed in one of your most recent pieces to the danger of a brand new war uh, between Israel and not Hamas, but another terrorist group called Hezbollah. Why, other than the fact that the, uh, the terrorists at Hezbollah have been provided by their Iranian sponsors with an estimated, uh, do they say 100,000 missiles? that Hezbollah no, supposedly that. has? 120,000 to 150,000. Okay, so... so, those, are, those, are, so those are the the arsenal. But yes, uh, I mean, that's part of the problem, but it's not the whole problem. The whole problem is just generally the larger war because we haven't even talked about the Houthis yet. Right, right, right. Well, so so the uh, the, the proper, I think, uh, frame for, for understanding why, at least in my estimation, a conflict between Israel and Hezbollah is inevitable is because essentially two things have happened. First of all, the Israelis um, have really upended their uh, strategic concept. Uh, the strategic concept by which they had approached terrorist groups like Hamas in previous years essentially relied on, on a couple of things. Uh, the first was that they essentially had escalation dominance, that because of uh, their technological prowess, because of you know superior intelligence, because of all these different factors, uh, they really had eyes on the problem set uh, with regard to, to Hamas um, and also other terrorist groups. And the second was that, you know, over time that these rejectionist factions would begin to moderate, uh, right? Essentially that economic prosperity would trickle down and the Palestinians would become uh, gentler. Um, and obviously that uh, sort of that construct has been demolished um, since October 7th. The problem that you have is that now that the Israelis are thinking about, you know, thinking about this environment anew, figuring out that they need a new security posture, what's happening in the north of the country, um, it becomes really important because what has happened since October 7th is you saw this exodus of Israelis out of affected communities in the south of the country, which is very natural. But you've had a parallel exodus from the north because residents up there are menaced by Hezbollah and those rockets. And they don't want a repeat performance of what they saw happen to their countrymen uh, in the south of the country. And so you've had this emptying out of the northern third of Israel. And the Israeli government is desperate to establish, uh, to sort of reestablish the status quo. But that requires making sure that those citizens are secure. And when you have an adversary that is very well resourced, that's really positioned to put population centers at risk, uh, it's very likely that the Israelis are going to have to go pick a fight. So, in other words, when you say that they're going to have to go pick a fight, they're going to have to initiate uh, a, um, uh, a major war with Hezbollah? Well, I, my, my sense is that I, I think this is the, where things are trending. And a lot of it has to do with this erosion of Israel's security posture in recent years. Because back in 2006, the last time Israel tangled with Hezbollah, the way the conflict ended was through a U.N. Security Council resolution, resolution uh, UNFCR 
1701. And that resolution stipulated that there was supposed to be a buffer zone that separated, you know, a buffer zone in southern Lebanon that separated Hezbollah from Israel and essentially provided a degree of protection. But what you've seen over the last several years has been this, uh, you know, creeping advance of Hezbollah uh, further and further south in Lebanon to the point where they are now right on the border. Um, and they're within shooting distance, uh, not just rockets, but also even rifles of Israeli uh, vulnerable Israeli communities. And so the Israelis, in order to get people to come back to those communities, have to push Hezbollah further north again. And that's going to require some pretty substantial shows of force. Can they push Hezbollah further north with uh, aerial attacks, or is it going to require another simultaneous ground mission to what's going on in Gaza? Well, I, I think that's a really good question. Um, I, I think the Israelis are certainly hoping and uh, hoping that they can do it um, with uh, an aerial campaign. And they're also hoping that they can do it with an aerial campaign later. They really, uh, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, most Israelis that I talk to think that a campaign against Hezbollah is inevitable, but they hope that it comes later. They want to wrap up or at least want, begin to wind down what they're doing in the Gaza Strip first. But, you know, none of those things are guaranteed. It's not guaranteed that they're going to be able to simply push Hezbollah back through uh, aerial strikes. And it's not guaranteed that they're going to be able to do it later. They might have to, you know, tangle with Hezbollah now. Well, right now, uh, there apparently are negotiations going on that are fairly well advanced to provide for a ceasefire with some humanitarian aid and medical aid that is meant to benefit not only the Palestinians who are suffering the brunt of the war in Gaza, but also the hostages remaining who need medical supplies. This is being negotiated with France and Qatar and Hamas and Israel. So is that the step one toward a more lasting uh, ceasefire and maybe getting the hostages back? I mean, possibly. Uh, the problem with what's happening now is that, you know, for, for among other things, uh, right, the Qataris are playing this really insidious dual role here because they're providing political cover and diplomatic cover for Hamas, which still has, you know, its political capos that are, uh, you know, resident in Doha at the same time, you know, it's essentially uh, playing both the role of arsonist and the role of firefighters simultaneously. <laughs> um, so that's one problem. The, the second problem is that there's a lot of opacity about the status of the hostages. Every day we hear about one or two that have, you know, turned out to have been killed or turned out to have been, um, uh, you know, sort of uh, disappeared. And as a result, it's not at all clear that Hamas can deliver in on its side of the story, right? All this whole ceasefire deal is predicated on the idea that the hostages are safe and the hostages can be, you know, treated and can be looked at and can be uh, sort of provided with humanitarian assistance. It's not at all clear that that's the case. And, uh, you know, it, w what we're looking at is an uncertain situation where this whole understanding may break down if Hamas can't. Uh, can provide the body, habeas corpus, as they say. The uh, the other thing that uh, is filling the Western press right now is uh, Israeli uh, revelations about the extent of the tunnel network and how difficult it's going to be to to do something about the tunnel network. I mean, isn't it a real possibility that they can can blow up these hundreds of miles of of tunnels running all underneath uh, Gaza? 
No, absolutely. And, and you know, the Israelis have been carrying out, you know, these systematic uh, attempts to, you know, to purge the tunnels, to flood the tunnels, to essentially render them inoperable. But th- we're talking about hundreds of kilometers that are uh, sort of, you know, crisscross uh, around major urban centers in the Gaza Strip. This is a very extensive network. And it's a network which, you know, part of the, the vexing problem here is that if that network isn't fully mapped and fully understood and rendered unusable, Hamas can, re- can resupply itself and others can resupply Hamas. Uh, it is not an easy situation, but it is uh, much appreciated to get some more perspective on it from Ilan Berman. His most recent commentaries are posted at our website at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back. On the uh, Michael Medved show, there is a general sense that uh, President Trump's march to what has been called his coronation as the Republican nominee for president of the United States is now unstoppable because not just because he won in Iowa, everybody expected that he would win, but he won by a, a much larger margin than many of the polls suggested. He got 51% of the vote. And then uh, a number of people point out that uh, getting 8% of the vote in Iowa was was also Vivek Ramaswamy, who is now campaigning for Trump and all along had been the most pro-Trump of the challengers for the nomination, uh, saying again and again that Trump was the greatest president of the century. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, Vivek uh, just appeared since he dropped out of the race. He is no longer a candidate for president. He dropped out of the race and uh, formally endorsed Trump. And uh, this is uh, at uh, one of the former president's campaign rallies. And you'll listen to how the crowd reacted to Ramaswamy and then what Trump said. Uh, This is clip 14. They're chanting VP. Good to see you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that's how was that? Pretty good, right? That was pretty good. And he's a fantastic guy. And he's really, uh, he's got something that's uh, very special because he started off with a Zippo and he's got, he ended up very strong. He did a great job. I was actually surprised when he called because he was doing well. And uh, it's an honor to have his endorsement. He's going to be working with us and he'll be working with us for a long time. Uh, that isn't uh, exactly saying that he is the chosen one, that Trump apparently has chosen to be VP, 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 Vice President. Uh, it, it's, uh, it seems to me highly unlikely that he would choose 
Ramaswamy unless he wanted to choose somebody with incredibly high negatives. And yes, there are people who love Ramaswamy and think he's terrific and a breath of fresh air, and you hear that, but he's also somebody who... <laughs> I mean, again, I, I, I don't know that they've ever done a poll like this, but for people who watched all of the uh, GOP debates, the new debate that they were supposed to be having tomorrow is canceled. Canceled because uh, both Donald Trump and uh, Nikki Haley said, uh, no, we're not going to go to that. And uh, they didn't want to just have, as uh, he had suggested at one point, uh, it's, uh, DeSantis has suggested that they should just have him come and debate two empty chairs, which I'm sure would have been hugely entertaining. Maybe you could have done little imitations of Trump and, and Haley there to sort of populate that debate. But that's not going to happen as entertaining as it might have been. One of the things that I think is fascinating is that President Trump is taking uh, Nikki Haley much more seriously now, and that partially because of uh, a new poll that came out yesterday, an American general poll, which is considered to be an authoritative, reliable poll, which shows a different result in, uh, in New Hampshire than any previous polling. The previous polling has showed a tightening race. The American General poll shows a tie between Nikki Haley and President Trump. So President Trump has decided that all of a sudden with a rival tying him in the next primary, uh, when he makes time for that, uh, <laughs> that uh, you have to uncork your um, most formidable attack, which is an attack on Nikki's name. Uh, the uh, CNN is reporting former President Donald Trump uh, on a Tuesday, that would be yesterday, went after Nikki Haley while referring to her by her first name, Nimarata, in the latest example of Trump using racist dog whistles to attack his GOP presidential rival. Now, you may remember that President Trump often referred to his predecessor as president as Barack Hussein Obama, and with the emphasis on the Hussein. Um, and Nikki Haley, uh, by the way, her birth name is Nikki. It's Nimarata Nikki. Uh, and uh, and then her parents' name, Randhawa. And uh, the idea that she is the child of immigrants, it's not something she's embarrassed about. I don't think it's something that people don't know. And by the way, if there's anybody out there, when when you hear that her actual name at birth on her birth certificate she was born in bamberg south carolina and this goes along with president trump uh circulating on his social media the completely fallacious idea that she's not eligible to be president because both of her parents were immigrants from the Punjab and uh, they came to the United States. She was born and then some seven years after she was born, when she was seven years old, her father became a naturalized citizen and her mother became a naturalized citizen sometime after that. But we do have, uh, despite the fact that it is controversial today, 
in the Constitution, in the 14th Amendment, yep, that same pusky 14th Amendment, the statement that uh, anyone who was born in this country is considered to be a, uh, a, a citizen. And as a matter of fact, I have the Constitution right here by my desk. I was just reaching for it. When you look at the very opening of the uh, 14th Amendment, Section 1, all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. And yes, she was born in the United States. Yes, she and her parents were here legally. And uh, yes, they were uh, subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. The, the stupidity of attacking Nikki Haley based upon her name, um, the uh, uh, Nick, Nikki Haley basically just shrugged in response to this. Uh, there's a, a piece that uh, uh, was written by another Indian immigrant to the United States, somebody of Indian named Bobby Ghosh. And uh, he writes about uh, the snide attack on fellow aspirant Nikki Haley over her name represents a failure to read two cultural constituencies. What he's talking about is the fact that Vivek Ramaswamy previously attacked Nikki Haley for taking the name Nikki, not acknowledging that Nikki is actually an Indian name, which is the point that this Bobby Ghosh makes in a piece in the Washington Post. He says that... Um, uh, the snide attack on fellow aspirant Nikki Haley over her name represents a failure to read two cultural constituencies, the American whole as well as the Indian American subset to which both of them, Vivek and Nikki, and I belong. Now, I, not me. I, Bobby Ghosh, the author of this piece. On his campaign website, uh, campaign website, Ramaswamy pointedly referred to the former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations as Namrata Randhawa, misspelling her first name, by the way, same misspelling that Trump used, uh, and using her maiden surname. She was named Nimarata Nikki Randhawa at birth, is commonly known by her middle name, and has used the surname Haley ever since her 1996 marriage to um, Michael Haley. And uh, who is currently serving our country? He's been called up in the National Guard, in which he is a member. Um, uh, Nikki's response to the jibe was appropriately dismissive. I'm not going to get into the childish name calling or whatever, making fun of my name that he's doing, she told Fox News. I mean, he of all people, she means Vivek Ramaswamy, should know better than that. By the way, is there anyone out there who, when you, you hear that Nikki was her middle name, not her first name originally, does that make you less likely to vote for her? Uh, but then again, we've had previous presidents, Thomas Woodrow Wilson. Yes, Woodrow was his middle name. Stephen Grover Cleveland. Uh, yes, uh, the Grover was his middle name. So uh, the, the, the somehow the, the 
<laughs> the crime of using the name Nikki. Uh, there has to be better ammunition against her in this greatest nation on God's green earth.